John chapter 11. I had a great time yesterday at the trunk or, trunk or treat. Appreciate everybody that had a part in that. No, keep walking. Somebody will explain that to you later. <laughs> oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Man. All right. By the way, if you saw a, uh, a young couple that was hanging out with us yesterday at the trunk retreat, that was Tony and Meg Hurley. Meg Hurley was my, uh, the counterpart of Vicki at my church in Alabama. And uh, they're dear friends. We love them. They they pray for us, and we pray for them. And we're just we're like family. And they uh, they came by to visit. And I'm so I felt bad. We put them right to work. Handed them a bucket of candy and said, "Pull your car over there." And uh, anyway, but uh, they were here. It was so good to see them. And uh, they had to get out early this morning because you know she'd had enough of my preaching. And uh, no, no, they had somewhere to be early this morning. And uh, but I was so thankful to have them with us. And uh, that was a blessing. John chapter 11, verse number 1. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. Father, would you help us now as we revisit the story of Lazarus? this historical account account of a man who was dead being brought back to life. Would you help me to rightly divide your word of truth? Would you help me to be a blessing to your people? And would you apply your word to all of our hearts as you see fit? And may Jesus be lifted up in our time together today. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. As we mentioned last week, this was not the last of Jesus' earthly miracles, but it's kind of the pinnacle. Um, it's, it's the one that uh, maybe most shakes our thinking. And uh, we, we looked last week at this truth um, that we're going to face difficult times times of misunderstanding. We're going to face trials of misery. We're going to face touches of melancholy, and we're even going to face tombs of mourning. And we learn from this passage how you can navigate those times, those trials, those touches, and those tombs. The key word of this story is the word believe, used eight times. And so what are the, what are the three truths that we gleaned last week that we really need to ingest and believe and appropriate if we're going to navigate these difficult times. First of all, Jesus loves you more than you know. One of the first things that, remember, the devil is not intent on making us believe that Jesus doesn't love us. He's intent on making us think that he loves us less than he actually does. That's all he has to do. He doesn't have to go all the way with that. 
Jesus loves you more than you know. Now, this was a tough one here. What happens to you isn't always about you. What happens to you isn't always about you. And when you read the passage, you find out that this wasn't primarily about Lazarus or even Mary and Martha. It was about the disciples and the crowd that would be there when Lazarus walked out of that tomb. That's who this was really about. Now, did they glean something from this? Absolutely. And that's why we're doing these continuing messages. But primarily, this wasn't really about them. And sometimes it's helpful to remember that what we're going through may not be about us. Maybe it's about somebody else. Maybe what we're going through helps our kids. Maybe what we're going through helps that unsaved neighbor, that coworker, that, that family member. It's not always about us. Thirdly, the darker the problem, the brighter the solution. Jesus let it get as bad as it could possibly get and then stepped in. Does he do that in our lives sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we revisit this passage this morning, and we want to do it from the perspective of those that were involved in it, Mary, Lazarus, even Jesus. But for this morning, we're going to begin with Martha. Now, the Bible gives us very little in the way of details about this family. There's some conclusions that we reach that aren't hard and fast, but probably pretty good, that we base on culture and how things generally worked back then and word order and that kind of thing. We, we culturally, we assume that their parents are dead. We assume that because rarely would you see this kind of a family dynamic. Usually a young lady is promised to be married and she's off with her family and Mary and Martha, neither one was the case with them. Lazarus is still at home. Um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Lazarus was not a fully grown man yet. He could have been a teenager. Um, we don't really think of him that way, but he could have been. So we don't have a lot to work off of, but, you know, the birth order, that's a mystery as well. I've always seen it as though Martha was the oldest and Lazarus was the youngest. It's interesting. I was talking to a preacher friend of mine. I often call preachers and run my messages past them, and, you know, and it's always a joy, always a joy when they tell me, no, that's not going to work because of this. And I'm like, well, you just messed up my whole sermon, you know. Sometimes what makes a good preaching isn't actually accurate. I'm learning that one. But, uh, you know, um, but we were talking about Lazarus, and he said, you know, I've always seen the exact opposite. I've always seen Lazarus as the oldest and Martha as the youngest. And I said, well, you're just wrong. <laughs> I told Brother Earl that. I told other brother, I said, Brother Earl, if you do end up going to heaven, you're going to find out all those times me and you disagreed, I was right. <laughs> you know what he did? He cut his eyes at me. <laughs> he may not even remember that I said that, but uh, I said it. <laughs> Whatever the order, it seems pretty evident that Martha was in charge. <laughs> she was in charge of the household. She's the one uh, getting things done there for the most part. Luke 10 kind of gives us that inclination. And there's stark contrast between the, two, between the two sisters. Martha's practical and pragmatic. Mary is pensive and preoccupied. Martha tends to deal with facts. Mary seems to be more driven by feelings. But both of these ladies possess a deep, profound understanding of spiritual things. We don't want to compare them or contrast them against each other as one being more spiritual than the other. They're just different. They're different. 
And they both understood things, some of them more so even than the disciples did. So while this miracle was not primarily for their benefit, they certainly reveal a lot to us that is instructive. So this morning, we want to start with this this subject, the faith of Martha. The faith of Martha. And, And I'll tell you the so what from the beginning. The so what is we need to look at Martha's faith as it's revealed in this passage and a couple of others. And, and, and say, Lord, is this something that either should exist in my life and doesn't, or is this something that doesn't exist in my life and should? Which is going on here, Lord? So go ahead and be asking God to reveal that to you and give you some marching orders today. By the way, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you need the faith to begin with. You need to come to Jesus before it's too late. I'm not asking you to be a Baptist. I'm not asking you to get in that pool back there. I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm asking you to come to understand that Jesus died to save you from your sins. And he's the only way to heaven. So be considering that as well if need be. The faith of Martha. Hold your place in John 11. Would you go to Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10. I want to begin with this first point might throw you off a little bit. Hers was an irritated faith. You ever had an irritated faith? If you don't know what that means, you'll figure it out in a second. I'll, I'll let you have it, let you have what I'm thinking here. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. You see, Martha's frustrated. Now, now it's it's. It's clear here, it's not that Mary refused to serve. She said that she left me. So Mary had been doing some serving. She had been preparing. But when Jesus got there, she left all of that and went to Jesus and sat at his feet. So she stopped. It wasn't that she never did. Sometimes people try to portray Mary as this, this lazy mystic that just wants to do nothing. No, that's not the case at all. She was busy. But she decided that this was a better use of her time, spiritually and practically, was to sit at Jesus' feet. And Jesus agreed with her, by the way. This irritation caused Martha to step beyond her station. And not only does she question whether or not Jesus cares, what a foolish question, but we've all done it, haven't we? There's a song about it, does Jesus care? You know, of course he does. What more need he do than what he's done? He went to the cross. If he did nothing else for us, he's obviously demonstrated that he cares. But she asked, don't you care? Disciples did that too, didn't they? Master, carest thou not that we perish? Of course he does. Then she demands that he do something. 
You ever try to demand God do something? I sometimes chuckle a chuckle of righteous indignation at these televangelists. Don't you understand that God acts at your word because of who you are in the kingdom? So you tell God what you want. Mm -mm. There's a Greek word for that. It's called balderdash. Another one's hogwash. Baloney. That's my Italian one. And then when we go back to John chapter 11, in verse number 21, you kind of sense this frustration maybe just a little bit again. What's she say? Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. There's almost an underlying, you let us down. You say, Andy, what in the world do we glean from an irritated faith? Here's the point. Now, you don't have to nod your head because I already know the answer. Have you ever been frustrated with God? You ever been irritated because the way he was handling something wasn't quite how you thought it should be handled? Or maybe he wasn't handling it in the time frame you wanted it handled? Because really, we don't like to wait, do we? Lord, I need you to take care of this, and I need, I need it post-haste. And then if his timing isn't matched up with ours or his, his, uh, his um, approach doesn't match up with ours, in our humanity, we can get a little irritated with God. And here's what a lot of people do. They get irritated, they get frustrated, and before long, they're mad at God. And when they get mad at God, they do the worst thing you can do. They run away from God. As, as though God doesn't realize you're mad at him. Now, there have been times that somebody's come to me and say, Pastor, I just want you to know you offended me. And usually I'm like, what? I didn't know that. There's been a couple of times like, yeah, I know. Preaching does that. There's never been a time that God's like, what, me? Of course he knows you're mad at him. But we have a tendency when we get mad at God, well, that's when we start laying out of church a little bit. We back out of our Sunday school class. We don't return calls like we used to, and we just start drifting back and drifting back and drifting back because we're mad at God. Let's give Martha credit. She was frustrated, and she was irritated in her faith, and what'd she do? She went straight to Jesus with it. I, I dare not approach God when I'm irritated with him. Why not? How is she going to fix it? Now, you're going to find out you were wrong. But how is she going to fix it? You go to him. And there have been many times that I've gone into my prayer closet and I've said, God, I know I'm wrong. I know I'm wrong, Lord. But I don't like how this is going. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you brought in my life. I don't like how you're handling this. And my attitude stinks. And I need you to change me. So give Martha credit. She had an irritated faith and she knew where to direct it. Number two. Hey, by the way, let me give you another one that maybe battled an irritated faith. 
You remember somebody that sent word to Jesus? Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? Sound like John the Baptist was a little irritated, didn't it? I've been out here proclaiming you. I've been out here, you know, your forerunner, prepare you the way of the Lord, and now I sit here in jail waiting on Herod to decide what he's going to do with me. Maybe I got behind the wrong Messiah to begin with. But who did he send the message to? Jesus. Did Jesus take offense at that? He did not. Now, what's interesting, I, I should take you there. It's in Matthew 11 or Luke chapter 7 if you want to you check up behind me. And I encourage you to always check up behind me. I encourage that for two reasons. Number one, I could be wrong because sometimes I don't remember things correctly. Number two, I could be a heretic. And the only way you're ever going to know that is if you check up behind me. So get yourself some heretic insurance and read your Bible. That'll never offend me. Never offend me that people check up behind me. Okay, now if you fact check every little thing I say that's not biblical, that might get on my nerves a little bit. But you said you were born May 16th, but I, I think that, no, I know when I'm born. But anyway, Jesus, Jesus went, when they came to him with this message, Jesus said, go and tell him again. <laughs> this wasn't the first time John questioned things. Go tell him again. Tell him all the wonderful works and everything you're seeing happening. And then you know what he turns around and says to the people? That's sorry, John the Baptist, that cousin of mine. Can you believe he's wondering this? That's not what he said at all, is it? He said there's not a greater born among women than John the Baptist. Was he offended? No, he was not. And he won't be offended if you go to him when you're irritated too. So quit running away from him and go to him. All right, number two. She had an irritated faith. But now we're going to get a little bit better. A little bit. She had an inaccurate faith. That's a little bit better than irritated. But her faith at times was inaccurate. Verse 20. John 11, verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, My brother had not died. Now, the faith is that she believed Jesus had the power to change his situation. But is it necessarily a true statement that had Jesus been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died? No, it's not a true statement. Not necessarily. Why do we say that? Because it is evident from verses 4 and 15 that Lazarus dying was the will of God. So whether Jesus was there or not there, Lazarus was going to die. So to say, if you'd have been here, my brother hadn't died, I get what she thinks, but that's inaccurate. Remember, death is ultimately the servant of God like everything else is. God's not in a corner somewhere hoping death won't take this. Death operates at God's command. And when God has done using death, he'll destroy it. But until then, it serves at his beck and call. So Jesus' presence in the world doesn't grant us exclusion from death. It grants us victory over it. Ms. Becky, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up. But I had the holy and high privilege of being there when Granny Warden went to heaven. 
And I bring up Miss Becky and Miss Joan and others, Brother Johnny, who were there. As her life began to wane, would you agree with me that Jesus was there? Yeah. Of course he was. Did she die? Yes. So to say, if Jesus would have been here, she wouldn't have died. No, he was there. And she did die. Again, Jesus' presence is not about giving us the ability to not die. It's about giving us victory ultimately over death. The Bible is clear. It's a point in a man wants to die. After this, the judgment. Now, the rapture could blow all of that up, and we pray for that. But if the rapture doesn't happen, here's happy point of the day. Every one of us is going to die. We're not exempt from it. So where then do we go? We go to 1 Corinthians 15, 54, where it says, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the what? Victory. <laughs> Through our Lord Jesus Christ. What God has done is he has made death stop being a period and become a comma. It's a pause. Now, those that are grieving, I get it. That's, that sometimes those kind of words sound and feel hollow. But they're no less true that for a Christian, death ultimately loses. And if the rapture were to happen today, if we were standing in a graveyard and the rapture were to happen today, the believers that come out of their, their graves, what are they crying? Oh, grave, where's your victory? You couldn't keep me. And what do we say behind them? Oh, death, where was your sting? Where do we get that victory? We get it through Jesus. Now, Martha's faith was inaccurate. But aren't you glad that God will bless even an inaccurate faith when it's placed in the right object? My faith's not always accurate either. But as long as it's directed toward Jesus Christ, the proper object of my faith, he'll work around my inaccuracies and he'll get me to where I want to be. Because what did Jesus do with Martha? What she said was patently untrue. But where did he lead her to? He led her to the resurrection. And I'm glad we don't have to be just perfect right in line for God to work in our lives. Aren't you? God just takes people that are messed up and confused and all over the map and does what he does anyway. See, so she, 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 she had an irritated faith, and she had an inaccurate faith. We're getting better. This one's good. She had an informed faith. Something a lot of people miss about Martha, verse 23. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, are you sure? 
Is that what she said? Martha saith unto him, I guess. I hope. I reckon. No. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Thank the Lord she had listened to Pharisees and not Sadducees. Because Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. So whoever taught her was of the right side of this thing. How did she know that? I'll tell you how she knew that. She knew her Bible. She knew what the Old Testament taught about life after death. And while God will bless well-intended, inaccurate faith, we dare not rest there. We don't want to stay there and just say, well, God will bless it. No, we want our faith to be accurate, don't we? And so how do you make inaccurate faith accurate faith? You inform it. You inform it specifically with the Word of God. Now listen to this. Ultimately, we will never have the quality of faith that God intends for us to have apart from the Word of God. If you are not in God's Word, if you are not studying, if you are not learning, if you are not reading, you will never, ever, ever have the faith that God wants you to have apart from His Word. They're... they're, they're, they're they're completely, it's mutually exclusive to think that you can, you can have faith without God's word. No, you have to have his word. We're, we're talking in, in, Ma, in Mark chapter 11, chapter 12, our next study of Mark. This, this absurd notion, these, these religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, now, now, Lord, we've got a question for you. If, if Kennedy, they didn't say Kennedy. But if, if Kennedy marries a fellow and he dies, under what's called the Leverett marriage, if he has a living brother, he needs to marry her to keep the, to keep the line going. So you find a man, just no, no, they don't do that anymore. But. All right, so the first husband dies, next brother steps up, assumes responsibility. So she marries him, and then he dies. And then the third one steps up. By the way, at this point, if I'm one of the brothers, I'm like, something's up. <laughs> hey, let me give you something to keep you up tonight. There's nothing in the Bible says that all the wives of the woman at the Samaritan well didn't, all the husbands of the woman at the Samaritan well didn't get killed either. She might have killed all them too. I doubt it, but you wrestle with that. That's for you, Brother Earl. Tell me what you think. Anyway, it goes through this seven times. She has married all seven brothers. They've all died. When she dies, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? That's an absurd question. And Jesus treated it as such. Because you know what he said? You don't know the scriptures, nor the power of God. What's he saying? Not only was that an absurd question, you don't know your Bibles, you have no hope of having my power either without the word of God. These people that say, well, I'm just all about loving Jesus and loving people, and I don't want to get barred down with doctrine and what the Bible teaches about things. I don't want divisions. I just want to reach across aisles and just love people, and God's given me the power to do that. God didn't give you any such power to do any of that foolishness. If doctrine's not a thing, why does Paul keep bringing it up and up and up and up and up and up? 
You can't have the faith you're supposed to have. You can't have the power of God you're supposed to have without the word of God. And Martha had an informed faith. So so we see a progression with her, don't we? She starts out with an irritated faith that gives way to an inaccurate faith, but, but thank God because of his word, she has an informed faith. And then what does that bring about in her life? It brings about an incredible faith. Sometimes we're hard on Martha. But Martha was a woman of faith that far surpasses my own sometimes. Verse 21 again. Even in the midst of her inaccurate understanding of Jesus. Lord, if that's been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, four days in that tomb, even now, whatsoever thou will ask of God, God will give it to you. Verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Can I pause there for a second, give you something for free? Nearly everybody in here has somebody you're thinking about moving into the holiday season that you miss desperately. Like I said, October has turned into a crummy month for our church. But that love when you miss, though he were dead, though she were dead, Yet shall she live. Yet shall he live. What about those that are left that miss them? And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Both of those phrases have the same destination. I want to go in the rapture, y'all, but if I have to go through death, so be it. Still ends up same place. But then Jesus asks her the most important question that I could ask anybody in this room or online or anywhere else. Whosoever liveth in me, liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he looks at Martha and what does he say? Believest thou this? Y'all, that's what it comes down to. Somebody says, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven. Well, have you been baptized? I dare not ask that. Are you a Baptist? I dare not ask that. Have you tried to be a good person? I dare not ask that. I have to ask the same question that Jesus asks. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? Because he's the only one. He's the only path to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none of the name under the heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one way. 
It leave us thou this. Now look at Martha's response. Verse 27, she saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. If that sounds familiar, there was another pretty high-profile Christian that made that same confession. Jesus saith unto them, Whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, in the midst of such heartache, Martha evidenced a profound faith, first that Jesus could bring Lazarus back. Then she confessed Christ, very similar to the proclamation of Peter. And you know what else she confessed? Look at verse 39. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. But what does it say in verse 41? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. So evidently Martha acquiesced to his request. What do we learn from that? No amount of discomfort, no amount of inconvenience is too much to endure for God to work. What's Martha saying here? I don't want you to open that door. I don't want people to smell my brother. I don't want people to know how bad it is, but if that's the only way that you'll do this, open the door. I don't want to go through this, Lord. I don't want to face this pain. I don't want to go through this difficulty. But if that's the only one my loved one gets saved, the only way my loved one gets saved, do it. If that's the only way my kids come back to Jesus, do it. If that's the only way that we see revival, do it. Because no amount of discomfort is too much in order to let God work. Man, what a profound, incredible faith. She laid aside her seemingly gruff, practical nature. And we can see that her faith was incredible. So what? I told you the so what before, but let's look at it again. It could be that somebody in this room or somebody online watching now or later, your issue is that you need faith to begin with. You've never been saved. You've not appropriated the finished work of Jesus Christ to your life. You need to be saved. That's your so what. Number two, some of us are entertaining an irritated faith right now. You don't like what God's doing or how he's doing it or when he's doing it. What do you need to do? You need to come to this altar or make an altar in your pew, and you need to go straight to Christ and tell him about it. Lord, I'm irritated, and I need your help. There's some in here that your faith is not as informed as it should be, and it's become inaccurate. And the reason it's become inaccurate is because you have not been the student of this book that you should, and it's time today to resolve by God's grace. I'm getting back into this book, and I'm going to inform my faith that he might make it all it can be. Or lastly, every one of us in here, need to be striving to let God do whatever he needs to do in our lives to make our faith incredible. Why is faith so important? 
I mean, can I get along with weak need, uninformed, inaccurate faith? Because God's a gracious God. To some degree, you can. May I remind you what the writer of Hebrews told us? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I'd like to believe that everybody in here wants to please God. We'll only do it by faith. So let's learn from Martha, shall we? And let's get that incredible faith.